The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. This morning after the headlines, I interviewed the Honorable Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey, as well as Bert Sechakian, the president of the Armenian General Benevolent Union. Let's go over some headlines from this morning as well as over the weekend. At least four people were stabbed Saturday night amid post-election protests in Washington, according to the DC Metropolitan Police Department's Public Affairs Office. At least 23 people have been arrested during the Stop the Steal protests, the mayor's office said. Large groups of protesters and counter-protesters gathered earlier in the day outside the Supreme Court and at Freedom Plaza to protest the presidential election results. Most individuals were not wearing masks. Former New Jersey governor and ABC News political contributor Chris Christie criticized President Donald Trump and his allies' efforts to overturn President-elect Joe Biden's election victory during this week's Powerhouse Players Roundtable discussion on Sunday. Christie said, The legal theory put forward by his legal team and by the president is an absurdity. The reason why the Supreme Court didn't take it is because it's an absurd idea to think that any state or any number of states, no matter how good they are, can challenge another state's right to run the election as they see fit. And also, there is no evidence, he added. On Sunday, President Trump continued to spread election disinformation while questioning whether to fire Attorney General William Barr, in part because Barr did not inform Trump of the federal investigation into the business dealings of Hunter Biden, the son of President-elect Joe Biden, before the election. 298,000 Americans have died from COVID-19 so far. The Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine can now be administered in the U.S., the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Robert Redfield, said Sunday. But health experts are warning it's likely the U.S. won't see any meaningful widespread impacts from the vaccinations until well into 2021. Millions of California renters are at risk of eviction as tenant protections soon expire, raising fears of a mass surge in homelessness during the deadliest phase of the pandemic so far. The state's emergency rules to pause evictions amid the COVID-19 crisis are scheduled to terminate at the end of January, which would result in landlords across California going to court to remove residents who are behind on rent. But amid a new stay-at-home order and shutdowns due to rapidly rising COVID infections, Tenants groups and some lawmakers are pushing for an extension of protections and broader measures to preserve housing. Essentially, when you don't pay rent, your landlord can take you to court in an unlawful detainer action or an eviction action um, to collect that rent and they can kick you out of your home or their home. Uh, And while this state of emergency is in place, they cannot do that. So if you're a mortgage holder, um, you can't be forced into foreclosure. And if you're a renter, you cannot be evicted from your home, even if you don't pay rent. I think the misconception here is that renters are thinking, well, then I'm just getting free rent for however long this lasts. And that is absolutely not true. Um, When the state of emergency is lifted, you are going to owe back rent. Okay, and that's going to be steep for some people. If your rent is, you know, two, three thousand dollars multiplied by God knows how long this is going to go on for, you are going to owe that back rent. Now, how this is being enforced is um, it depends on the city that you're renting in. So uh, if you look up at Los Angeles, city of Los Angeles, which is the largest city in the state, um, there are certain rules and regulations that you have to follow. So for instance, while you don't have to prove to your landlord that you have a COVID-related 
inability to pay, like you lost your job, you lost your income, you have sick people in your family, you have medical bills, you don't have to prove that to your landlord. You can simply write them about seven days before your rent is due and say, I have um, financial difficulty because of COVID-19, I'm gonna, not gonna be able to pay the rent for a while. You notify them preferably before the rent is due. But if, if the emergency order is lifted and you still can't pay, um, in the city of Los Angeles, you, you're supposed to, as, as it stands now, you're supposed to have 12 months to pay off the back rent, right? But let's say you still can't find a job. You're still unable to pay the rent. And then your landlord takes you to court after the emergency order is lifted. Well, you're then might be able to have to prove up your financial inability. So my best recommendation to the viewers is to number one, put in writing your inability that you know inability to pay rent um give it to your landlord ahead of the due date for your rent and keep records of your loss of income your loss of employment and all the reasons why you're unable to pay because if you end up in court after the emergency order is lifted a judge might want to know wait a second are you just using the covid 19 pandemic as an excuse or do you really did you really have financial difficulty because of it Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. For today's Let's Get Blunt, I want to share with you my new realization that a lot of these internationally well-known organizations that we know of and we think of who are supposed to do their job when a crisis happens, uh, when wars break out, hostilities, oppression, genocide, ethnic cleansing, and my realization that they don't always do the right thing. In fact, a lot of times they do not. Particularly, this realization um, happened for me because of what happened on September 27th when Azerbaijan and Turkey launched this genocidal attack on Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, and the inaction of the international community. Now, let's first talk about NATO. NATO was set up as a counter power to the old USSR to protect its uh, members from war and attacks and hostilities. Turkey uh, is a member of NATO, and because of that, it's gotten away with quite a lot and has been causing uh, so, ma so many different problems in different regions of the world. NATO has for the most part, turned a blind eye to President Erdogan's uh, attacks and meddling in Libya, Syria, uh, all the provo you know, provocative acts and uh, hostilities in the Eastern Mediterranean against Greece and Cyprus, and of course, recruiting and bringing ISIS, Syrian, Libyan, Pakistani mercenaries to uh, Azerbaijan to fight against the Armenians. So NATO has been sort of pretty silent through this entire thing. Then there's the European Union. For, for the most part, European Union has been just as silent. Its members, according to many reports, a lot of the leading members of the European Union are under the influence of the Azerbaijan and Turkish lobby, of course, uh, available to them with lots of Azeri oil money. Um, France, with the leadership of President Macron, has been the most outspoken country against uh, the atrocities that they have um, launched since September 27th. But even then, they didn't do anything to intervene. The intervention finally came from Russia. The Council of Europe, which is the, it's the sort of the security organization for European countries, same thing, uh, completely silent, uh, not condemning Turkey and Azerbaijan for what they're doing, uh, nothing coming from them. Amnesty International is uh, just did a report that's really egregious about what happened and what's happening in, in Artsakh and sort of digging actions that Armenian soldiers took to defend themselves in the midst of this, these attacks and comparing them to the massive crimes of war crimes and crimes against humanity uh, of Azerbaijan and Turkey, including beheadings of uh, Armenians, civilians, prisoners of war, and captured soldiers, etc. Uh, it was just really absurd. It's this sort of like 
let's look at both sides absurdity um, and I always use the same terminology that if you go to the home of a battered wife and a wife beater you don't put you know you don't sit with both the husband and wife and say I would like for both of you to put your fists down so it's really absurd to um, equate what Azerbaijan and Turkey have done to any defensive action from the Armenian side. UNESCO, which uh, is supposed to be about protecting and preserving uh, cultural heritage, uh, historical sites, and antiquity. Of course, they didn't bat their eye when Azerbaijan destroyed more than 2,000 Armenian monuments, churches, monasteries, cross stones in Nakhichevan, just part of historic Armenia, and they're doing it again. And come to find out that uh, the wife of the president of Azerbaijan, the wife of uh, President Aliyev, she, of course, who's also been appointed to be the vice president of Azerbaijan, she sits on the board of UNESCO. Now, how is she on the board of UNESCO when the country where she's from and her husband are deliberately bombing and shelling churches and monasteries and historical monuments in Artsakh. We also come to find out that she donated $5 million to UNESCO. So uh, we now know how she got to be on the board of directors of UNESCO. Then there is the OSCE, which is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, who has the Minsk Group, which was set up to negotiate a peace settlement between Artsakh and Azerbaijan. Like all the others, uh, OSCE has been pretty silent. We're now being told that nothing will really happen until uh, OSCE's immense group reconvenes, um, the three members of it, Russia, France, and the U.S. Of course, President Trump did absolutely nothing. In fact, uh, most people think that uh, Erdogan was emboldened to do what he did because his pal Trump gave him the the thumbs up. So under the Trump administration, OSCE didn't and does not do anything. And it's, uh, it's hard to tell what's going to happen when President Biden takes over. And State Department is sort of continuation of that. Um, Secretary Pompeo was pretty quiet. Um, and uh, we, you know, there are a lot of conflicts of interest for uh, Secretary Pompeo, as well as Donald Trump, of course, Trump having two towers in Turkey and building one in Azerbaijan. Human Rights Watch, another disappointment, very bad biased reporting coming out of there. And the UN, aside from some minor reporting, uh, no condemnation, uh, no action whatsoever. So the impression that that's really left in a lot of people is it doesn't matter if you are righteous, if you are the victim, if you are right, if you are, if you've been victimized. What matters is your political power in, on an international scale, how much oil you have, the strength of your military, your exports, and other natural resources that uh, other countries uh, want, such as Azerbaijani oil, for example. Uh, so it's really devastating, and it's very disappointing. So it's, it's really a beginning for me to look at these organizations in a different way and dig deeper into their politics and such. Uh, we do know that months leading up to the attack by Azerbaijan and Turkey, they hired um, six lobbying firms and PR firms in D.C. to make sure that the media narrative was uh, biased against Armenians. And also that uh, Azerbaijani government has been heavily lobbying European bodies and uh, leaders, most of it actually being in Britain. So there it is. That's my bluntness, which is a bit sad and it's a little bit um, disheartening. But uh, we've got to sort of look at the sad reality of it. So perhaps we can do something about it. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. Senator Bob Menendez serves as the ranking member and the most senior Democrat of the powerful Senate Foreign Relations Committee that helps shape foreign policy of broad significance in matters of war and peace and international relations. 
He was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in the 113th Congress, where he led the effort to sanction Russia after they invaded Ukraine. Saturday marked the one-year anniversary since Senate passed Senator Menendez's Armenian Genocide Resolution Bill, which formally recognizes the Armenian Genocide on behalf of the U.S. government. Senator Menendez obtained the unanimous consent of his Senate colleagues to pass his Senate resolution affirming the historical facts of the Armenian Genocide perpetrated by the Ottoman Turks and honoring the memories of its 1.5 million victims. Senator Menendez, how are you, sir? Hi, this is Jeremiah. Yes, sir. Thank you for how are you? Good. Thank you for being on the show. I'm I'm a big fan and honored that you would uh, you would speak with me. Sure, pleased to do so. Yeah. So, Senator, before I get into the main topic that I wanted to discuss with you, um, I just want to ask you a general question in terms of us as a country, where we are post-election amid COVID and looking toward 2021. Mm -hmm. What's your perspective on where we are as a country? Well, we, we have uh, a nation uh, for which there are deeply divided views. We have a nation, however, that collectively uh, is faced with the challenge of the worst pandemic in, in a century um, and that has ravaged uh, and taken so many lives of loved ones and our communities and not only dramatically taken an extraordinary number of lives, but also ravaged our economy uh, and what people have built over the course of a lifetime. And that in and of itself should be something that brings us together in common cause. Um, I, I hope that there is a new beginning. The American people chose by an overwhelming number of votes, over nearly six million, uh, President-elect Biden. He is obviously laser focused on the question of COVID-19 and getting uh, us past the pandemic, uh, recovering economically as well as in our health. Uh, and I hope that that new beginning is also a new beginning in, in bringing people together in common cause and healing some of the deep rifts that exist within our country that has been, uh, you know, vividly exposed by uh, the actions of the present administration. Wow. Well said. Thank you for that, Senator. Mm -hmm. So, Senator, you have been a, a champion, to say the least, for so many humanitarian causes, um, including uh, you really spearheaded the recognition of the Armenian Genocide, which, um, which happened about a year ago. And it was, um, it was you know, you co-authored the resolution, the Armenian Genocide Resolution Act, and for about a month you would go on the Senate floor uh, saying that we're not going to leave until this is voted on. And of course, you were able to get, get it passed the Senate unanimously last year. So first, I thank you for that. And uh, the other thing, obviously, I want to talk to you about, which is just something we never thought we'd be here again, what happened uh, on September 27th with uh, this genocidal war and ethnic cleansing that Azerbaijan and Turkey um, perpetuated against Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, and, uh, and its aftermath. Uh, and you've been very vocal about that, too. So before I ask you any specific questions, just want to get your words about how you feel about what happened. Well, you know, first, uh, we're uh, almost celebrating in a few days the historic accomplishment of having the United States Senate by unanimous consent pass my resolution affirming the facts of the Armenian genocide. This is something that I have been working uh, since my time in the House of Representatives and since I entered the Senate in 2006. Uh, and I appreciate that the final passage would not have been possible without the support and commitment of the Armenian American community. As you mentioned, during the, that session of uh, the Senate, I had to go to the floor to call for the, for the passage, not once, not twice, but four times. Each of the first three times, a Republican senator chose to block it. Uh, and finally, on the fourth attempt, the Senate stopped enabling Turkey's lies and the resolution passed by unanimous consent. And it's a victory, I really think, which brings us to the present, for all who value the truth and believe in the words, never again. 
But here we are, and I'm glad to also have gotten the Library of Congress to change uh, their their um, volumes and sub on the subject, uh, and in their denial, and now recognize the Armenian genocide uh, uh, as such. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. You know, for those of us who believe that it was so important not only to recognize the history, but to do so because uh, if we if we do not, what has passed is prologue. We are now so alarmed um, and distraught by what is happening uh, in Artsakh, uh, where we have seen the incredible devastation um, on the Armenian people in the past few months. Uh, thousands of civilians and, and soldiers have lost their lives. Um, more than half of the population of Nagorno-Karabakh has been driven from their homes. Uh, every day we we see more videos and hear more reports of atrocities that Azerbaijani soldiers are committing against Armenian POWs and civilians in clear violation of international humanitarian law, to say nothing of basic human decency. And so, you know, my first priority has been responding to the humanitarian crisis uh, that uh, both uh, Erdogan and Aliyev uh, have created. Uh, That's why I I sent a bipartisan letter to the Appropriations uh, Committee uh, that as they devised this present budget, urging them to include funding to address these humanitarian needs, including money to clear the mines and unexploded ordinances like rockets uh, in our government funding bill. And I'm going to be pressing both Congress and the incoming Biden administration to do so as long as it's necessary. Uh, I, I also think that it is, um, you know, a disgracefully uh, uh, neglectful that the United States did not engage in uh, trying to end the conflict early, and that lack of engagement was filled by Russia and Turkey. The U.S. should have engaged at the most senior levels before the situation spun out of control. And, um, you know, I believe that the strong U.S. diplomacy at the outset could have prevented this terrible tragedy. Now we are forced uh, with an occupied uh, area uh, where uh, Russia is now has a very thin line of peacekeepers questionable as to how much they're willing really to push back at the end of the day. We're looking at the water supply that our Armenia has that is in this region, now uh, physically in the potential control of the Azerbaijanis. Um, and uh, that's why I believe the United States needs to hold Azerbaijan and Turkey responsible for their aggression and make sure we don't enable future atrocities. And to that end, I've introduced two resolutions that will require the State Department to report on human rights abuses by Azerbaijan and Turkey and on the role that U.S. security assistance and arms transfers may be playing in in those abuses. And we're working to build support to get those resolutions passed so that we know that uh, this way we can know that the U.S. isn't facilitating these dictators' violent behavior. And those are 754 and 755, correct? Yes. Okay. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with the Honorable Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey. Thank you for that detailed description and your assessment of what's happening. It's so true and so tragic. Uh, Senator, the sense that I get from Armenians, both in diaspora as well as Armenia itself, is the world has abandoned them. That how much evidence uh, does the world need to see before anyone acts? I mean, there have been countless videos of uh, Armenians being beheaded alive, uh, as well as others. And these are just ones that were captured by Azerbaijani soldiers. Who knows how many there others have taken place that were not captured. NATO is, you know, one of the organizations that has been very disappointing. The first one, of course, the State Department, you know, Secretary Pompeo didn't really do much about this, but people are questioning NATO's um, role and NATO's uh, lack of, you know, lack of uh, involvement uh, and allowing Turkey, a so-called NATO ally, to fuel this and bring uh, all kinds of mercenaries from Syria, Libya, Pakistan, and ISIS to fight this fight, and now they are placing them in occupied uh, Artsakh lands uh, permanently. So 
What do we not know about NATO and what their role is? Well, of course, the the challenge with NATO is NATO is a a um, a treaty by which the countries who are members to the treaty ultimately uh, have mutual security uh, uh, cooperation and obligations. Of course, Armenia is not part of NATO. Um, however, uh, the reality is it's also based not only on a security basis, but it's also based on certain principles of uh, democracy and human rights. Uh, and in that regard, I have outside of just even the Armenia context on a broader context, although certainly what has happened uh, in uh, Arsak is uh, a glaring example of what I'm about to say is that NATO uh, has to really reconsider whether Turkey uh, is a reliable NATO ally uh, based upon its actions. Uh, not only what it facilitated uh, in the atrocities uh, in Artsakh, uh, but what it is doing uh, in the Aegean, uh, its disruption in the eastern Mediterranean uh, against uh, uh, Greece and Cyprus, two members of the European Union, in terms of exploring their exclusive economic zones, uh, what it is doing uh, uh, in Libya, uh, which is uh, against the vital national interest, not only of the United States, but many other countries that have viewed uh, Turkey's participation there as extremely problematic, what it's done in Syria. I mean, the list, uh, what it is doing to um, holy sites, uh, the challenge that it is providing to uh, the Orthodox Church, I mean, the, the, there are more lawyers uh, and journalists in prison in Turkey than in any other part of the world. When you think about repressive uh, regimes in the world, that's saying something. So for all these and many other reasons, NATO has to have an internal uh, review about what do they do when a NATO member no longer acts in accordance with the principles of NATO. And I think this is a critical question that the United States, as part of the NATO alliance, needs to bring. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, I, 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 I am deeply concerned that the premise, the beginning of your question, or the preface of your question, is one that alarms me, which is the relative silence by countries in the world who should be rising up, uh, at least with their voices and where appropriate their votes, uh, against what is happening uh, in uh, Artsakh, what can happen to Armenians uh, in the region uh, and in Armenia itself uh, if we continue to turn a blind eye and then Armenia doesn't have the same uh, air force powers, it doesn't have the same military powers as those that are involved in the region um, and uh, between Russia and Turkey and uh, even Azerbaijan uh, has uh, greater military resources. This is, this is uh, you know, potentially an existential threat. And so uh, no country that is otherwise peaceful should be in the midst of such an existential threat. The world needs to speak out, and I would hope that the Biden administration will do that when they take office through both the Secretary of State, uh, our newly designated uh, UN ambassador, uh, and others as well. And I'll be asking those questions of these nominees when they appear before me as a senior Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Great. Thank you for that. Um, I don't want to take too much of your time. I just have one last question. You mm -hmm. Right now, what it seems like is that we are waiting for the OSCE men's group to sort of um, jumpstart or restart their process. And you recently said that the men's group uh, appears to be on life support, but they should still be reinvigorated and to restart this process. From where I am and uh, the what I'm reading about it is nothing is being done. Like OSC, we haven't heard from them, period. Is this something we should wait for when President Biden takes office? Well, I mean, uh, there's only one president at a time. I wish President Trump was fully engaged in using the OSC and our, our membership in the Minsk group to drive 
uh, a a peaceful resolution of of the process and and guarantee uh, the human uh, rights of uh, Armenians uh, uh, as well as the, their sovereignty as a nation. But uh, you know, there's nothing that can be done by an administration that already was largely turned a blind eye to what was happening. Uh, had an increase of arms sales uh, to Azerbaijan, and, and I believe in violation of the law because there is a provision that you could only sell to Azerbaijan if they weren't uh, uprooting the balance and were peaceful in their process. Well, there was a rocketing of arms sales under the Trump administration to Azerbaijan. The Secretary of State, Pompeo, signed a series of waivers that attested to that, but we've seen that the Azerbaijanis did everything but be peaceful. And so we have to wait for the next administration uh, to take a different course uh, because uh, there's only one president at a time and President Trump's the president until January 20th. But in the interim, you know, I've had conversations uh, with the French or the French ambassador here uh, in Washington. I think, uh, uh, you know, President Macron uh, had some early strong words and intervention. They are part uh, of the Minsk group, I hope that I would hope that they would lead as the United States gets back to the table, that they would lead in this intercession because, you know, I think time is of the essence. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Okay. Well, Senator Menendez, it was truly an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much. If there's anything I haven't brought up, please uh, let us know if you want to. No, well, I think we've co we've covered a lot of uh, challenging uh, challenging times, but um, I'll just close on this. I recently saw the movie The Promise, yes. and uh, I had not seen it before, and I remembered of the line that says, uh, "Despite everything that has been done to the Armenians, we are still here." Uh, they will. They are still here, and they will continue to be, as far as I'm concerned. We will do everything possible to make sure that that's the ultimate result of history. Thank you for that. That was well said. Thank you, Senator. All right. All the best. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. That was Senator Bob Menendez from New Jersey, uh, one of my favorite senators and one of the most admired in the country. I'm very grateful to have you, Senator, on my show this morning. Thank you very much. Blunt Post with Vic. Baird Setrakian is an attorney with the law firm DLA Piper LLP and serves as the president of the Armenian General Benevolent Union, the largest Armenian nonprofit organization in the world, having been elected to this position in 2002. Mr. Setrakian also serves on the board of directors of various nonprofit organizations, including the American University of Armenia. Mr. Setrakian was recognized with an Ellis Island Medal of Honor for his work on behalf of the Armenian American community. Good morning, uh, Mr. Setrakian. Thank you for being on the Blunt Post with Vic today. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Well, thanks for taking the time to uh, be with us, considering all that's happening and all that AGBU is doing. But first, I wanted to just just ask you very briefly if you can explain uh, AGBU. I know you guys have been around since 1906, uh, and it was founded in Egypt and later uh, moved to New York, I believe the second chapter. So I'll let you explain about AGBU a little bit. Well, AGBU was uh, created, uh, as you mentioned, in 1906, and the founder was uh, Boaz Numar Pasha, whose father was the Minister of Finance uh, of uh, Egypt, uh, when Egypt was uh, really one of the say, superpowers of the region. And uh, he had negotiated the financing of the construction of the Suez Canal with the Bank of Indochina. And then he was Prime Minister of Egypt under uh, the king. Uh, so the founder of EGBU uh, was raised under that environment. And uh, he decided that uh, uh, Armenia, which was uh, shattered uh, to uh, build an organization which can secure on the long run the state, uh, the statehood of Armenia. That, that was his dream. Uh, unfortunately, in 1915, at that time, HBU had over 200 schools in, under the, in the various districts of, of Greater Armenia, which was uh, practically occupied for 600 years by the Ottoman Empire. When the Armenian genocide happened, 
obviously the focus of HBU turned basically to more humanitarian activities uh, to take care of the refugees, to take care of the orphans, to take uh, care of the widows. And it started uh, establishing uh, orphanages, schools, camps, uh, refugee camps, uh, basically in uh, Syria and Lebanon. As you know, the, after the genocide, the Armenians who were living more in the Anatolia region, they went through the Middle East and they were welcomed uh, by then the various Arab countries' regimes wholeheartedly. And those who were more uh, in the uh, western part of Turkey, like Istanbul, Izmir, and other places, they ended up in Marseille and they have become the basic community, Armenian community in France and, and Greece. And from Greece, many of them went to South America. So HBU turned into a humanitarian uh, organization. And at the same time, from the orphanages, and it, built school, it turned them into schools. From schools, it turned them into universities. Uh, it developed community centers. Obviously, it lived all the phases of the Armenian uh, suffering and Armenian realities until the Armenian community was able to stand up on its feet and uh, we had the independent Armenia. HBO wow. obviously is a non-political organization. It's a charitable organization, but uh, we have to make it clear that Armenian, uh, that HBO is not political in the sense that it, it gets involved in politics within Armenia or in uh, abroad. Like we do not participate in elections. We, uh, our members are free, are citizens of their own countries. And we encourage the integration of the Armenians in the various countries where they live. But when it comes to issues pertaining to the uh, survival of the Armenian nation, like uh, when uh, in uh, 1918 there was a negotiation at the uh, Sev Treaty of the future of the former Ottoman Empire, the divisions between the Allies, especially the French and the British, it's AGBO's president, uh, Boz uh, Nwar Pasha, who headed the Armenian delegation. Or when in 1946, uh, Stalin decreed that any ethnic group uh, which doesn't have at least one million uh, population is not uh, able to have the status of statehood. That's when AGBO jumped in and financed the repatriation of uh, thousands of Armenians to Armenia and as a result, we were able to have a statehood within the Soviet Union, uh, which uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, it became the present Armenia. Uh, right. And this was at a very high price uh, at the time the, when the, after the, it was at the peak of the Cold War. So that's why HBU is a national organization. We try to be somehow part of the conscience of the nation. And our main concern is the uh, perpetuation of our identity. That's why uh, HBU works very closely with the church, the Armenian uh, uh, Apostolic Church, uh, with uh, its headquarters in uh, uh, in, in uh, Armenia, because uh, it has been a fact that, uh, unfortunately, during our centuries of existence, we had independence uh, for, uh, for more uh, for less than 50 years, practically, the church has maintained our identity. As a matter of fact, if you go to Armenia today, you know that the land of Armenia is not a very fertile land. It's basically a rocky land. Right. But you have about 2,000 churches or seminars established in the 4th century, 6th century, 8th century, which will tell you that the soul of that land comes from our, uh, our religion. We are the first uh, Christian nation uh, in, the, in the world. So I think this is, a, in a nutshell, yeah. what EGBU stands for. And that's why now we are presently very much concerned with the present yeah. situation. It was devastating the way that the coalition of Turkey and Azerbaijan, with uh, all the modern weapons acquired uh, from uh, various countries like Israel and others, overwhelmingly wiped out a whole section the whole section of uh, Artsakh, Karabakh, and within less than uh, five weeks, we had over five to six thousand young soldiers killed, about ten thousand wounded, about sixty, seventy thousand displaced, 
it is the, the uh, worst experience that we encountered since the genocide of 1915. And that's where we think that we made an appeal. It is time to have a leadership independent from uh, past regimes, independent from it, because Armenians have enough skilled, qualified people. We need to take a fresh look as to the future of Armenia from the geopolitical point of view, from the economic point of view, etc., etc. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Bert Setrakian, the president of the Armenian General Benevolent Union. Uh, Mr. Setrakian, first of all, thank you very much for that very detailed explanation as the the founding of AGBU and um, sort of its legacy through the last 114 years plus. And you're making really good points, and I don't want um, listeners to miss those. As you said, on September 27th, uh, a very well-orchestrated attack happened on Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, by Azerbaijan, backed by Turkey and ISIS and mercenaries from Syria, Libya, Pakistan. And, uh, you know, they penetrated violently, breaking all kinds of international rules with banned weapons such as cluster bombs and using white phosphorus munitions to set villages on fire, set forts on fire. My question for you before we get into the situation today is, why do you think that the international community did not, you know, they, they didn't flinch, they didn't really respond? In terms of like United Nations, Council of Europe, European Union, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, etc. You know, you are absolutely right. I mean, uh, there is no doubt uh, that today, as you know, there is a Islamic fundamentalist movement, first of all, across uh, the map. Islam by itself is not a uh, violent religion. Armenians have been welcomed in the entire Muslim Middle Eastern world after the genocide. And we were offered all kinds of hospitality. But uh, today the world is going to some fundamental. It's not only among Muslims, even among some say, Christian sects. But Mr. Erdogan is uh, completely out of control. We know that he attempted recently the crisis with Greece in Eastern Mediterranean uh, Sea. Uh, he uh, provoked a crisis in Libya. He encouraged all the mercenaries in Syria, which then he exported them to uh, Azerbaijan to fight the Armenians. And, uh, you know, uh, the problems that he has with uh, President Macron, qualifying the, the President Macron as being really crazy, we should go to see a psychiatrist, and right. this is just, I'm quoting him, which I think it should be the reverse, it's something else. Right. And But nobody is saying anything. Yeah. And today we witness a new, practically, a new genocide. And if you, as a matter of fact, just two days ago, while celebrating with a big military parade, the victory yeah. over Armenia in Baku, where the President uh, Erdogan was the guest of honor, President Organan, Erdogan praising Enver Pasha, and uh, and you know Amber Pasha is the mastermind of the uh, genocide. Pasha who really orchestrated and implemented the genocide and the killing of 1.5 million Armenians yeah. is like practically praising uh, Hitler. And then he said the practically implying that the work that uh, of genocide that Amber Pasha started uh, will be completed. And then you have Aliyev thanking him for his speech and saying that as a matter of fact. This is just the beginning that we took uh, Garabal, but uh, Sunik, Sevan Lake, and Yerevan also belong to Armenia. Armenia has uh, never been and should never be an independent country. With such irresponsible acts, yeah. uh, and then nobody in the West, I am uh, worried that really the West is going bankrupt to a certain degree, even we as the United States of America in our foreign policy, whether we are going bankrupt or not, because we claim as the guardians of the human rights and universal declaration of human rights. And uh, all we see that nobody, the only uh, universal uh, right is with strength. Whoever is strong, uh, as they say, in French, they have the fables of La Fontaine saying that la raison du plus fort est toujours la meilleure, which means that whoever has the strength, he is right. And we have seen how 
with the, the, the situation in Crimea, in Hong Kong, and other places, nobody says anything. And now, even in the Armenia during 45 days, not one European leader, not a U.S. leader, not, nobody, nobody attempted if uh, to stop uh, the killings or to really uh, somehow uh, intervene, yeah. at least give lip service. Yeah. We, at this stage, I think that the only protector of uh, uh, Armenia by the end uh, that uh, we can rely upon is uh, Russia. Correct. And I think there's a lot of hopelessness about uh, within Armenians uh, seeing this. And even even though President Macron of France was the most vocal and most supportive, I don't think that he's gone far enough. There should have been an intervention. And as you said, you know, whoever has the most power, and in this in this case, Azerbaijan's oil money is sort of buying a lot of lobbyists and uh, buying the silence of a lot of European so-called leaders and organizations. The reports that came from Amnesty and Human Rights Watch were slap in the face in the last two days. The speech that you mentioned uh, at the Azerbaijani victory parade, if you will, was... This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Bert Setrakian, the president of the Armenian General Benevolent Union. You know, to think that in 2020, someone can be so belligerently hateful and to incite hate and violence on their neighbor, and uh, that it's not on CNN, MSNBC, Fox, uh, it's just mind-boggling as to how could that possibly happen. Uh, you see, during the genocide of 1915, one of the excuses by many of the uh, Allied forces then was that there was no communication and they were not aware that Armenians were being massacred, right. even though Ambassador Morgan, too, who was the U.S. ambassador, kept sending reports alerting uh, the U.S. Senate that uh, Armenians are being massacred in the thousands, and yeah. nobody paid attention. But uh, they they claimed that they didn't know. But in the, in this day and age, when uh, the war and the reports were on every TV network, on uh, uh, we, we praise the global uh, globalization of the world and the globalization of the news. Yeah, everybody knew that everyday people were being killed. Even, and yeah. even we have the so-called Minsk group, which consists of Russia, the United States of America, and France, which are in charge of the relationship between... Artsakh and Azerbaijan. And other, uh, Azerbaijan, except for Russia. None of the other two really powers took any initiative. Well, uh, the it's, US... It's, it's, it's distressing... We used to say that where you know we continue to organize conferences about prevention of genocide, prevention of violence, prevention of. The, as a matter of fact, I just delivered the, the opening remarks uh, on December nine, for an event uh, about uh, uh, prevention of genocides in general. Nothing to do with Armenian genocide because this was adopted by December nine by the resolution of the United Nations, and this is uh, what I just said that. Uh, we are trying to and uh, to talk about uh, prevention of genocide. In the meanwhile, uh, all, all over the globe, we are witnessing even in Ethiopia. In uh, it's uh, it, it didn't stop. We never learned the lesson of uh, the humanitarian uh, crises and uh, how to prevent violation, uh, uh, violence. And it seems that the world is getting more violent rather than peaceful. Yeah, thank you for well, that, uh, Mr. Setrakian. I totally agree. Even one can say the what's happening to the Kurdish minority in Turkey yep. and what they're doing, what Erdogan and his regime are doing to Kurdish people. It's a slow yep. genocide that's been building for decades. It's really shameful. I want to ask you, so I don't take too much of your time, last, last question is um, uh, your perspective in terms of uh, Prime Minister of Armenia, Mr. Nikol, uh, Pashinyan and your thoughts about like having uh, like a fresh start. You know, I think that like uh, uh, let's not forget that the Armenia after the independence, the independence of Armenia happened overnight with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Right. So there were no rules, no precedents, and most of the former republics of the Soviet Union kept their former communist dictators 
in place, like in uh, Azerbaijan, the Aliyev family since 1964, from father to son, as it's a, a kingdom, they govern the country as uh, if it is their own uh, uh, property, to such an extent that Mr. Aliyev uh, has uh, officially appointed his wife as vice president. Right. And Armenia was the only country which uh, took the road uh, towards uh, the democracy, and obviously, because we have, uh, we considered ourselves somehow more civilized, maybe, and uh, we had an experience of the diaspora, and we wanted uh, some Western values uh, and the basic principle of democracy. But you know, democracy is not an easy. Uh, it's much easier to run an authoritarian regime than a democracy. Right. The past uh, regimes uh, for the last thirty years. Uh, in Armenia, to a certain degree, abused their, uh, the, or they were experiencing creating really democratic institutions, even though never the former communists came back to power, contrary to most of the former Soviet uh, republics, uh, except uh, a couple of them, uh, like uh, Georgia. The, and uh, so we or we say that we don't definitely we agree that we don't want any more any part of the former regimes which are now behind the opposition to Pashinyan to come back to power because this has left a bad taste of all the oligarchs and the corruption right. at the same time with the present uh, government we believe that with uh, the disaster which happened under their watch because this is not uh, a government which is three months old. It's almost three years old now. It is in the best interest of the country that with the support of the present uh, parliament and, the, and the, the support of the president and the church and all the elements, together we uh, try to bring about an independent government which take a, a, a new, fresh look to the situation in Armenia, because really we have to decide what is our future in that region. Region. How are we going to deal with the powers? Uh, how we are going to have uh, to bring economic prosperity? How we are going to? Because we have to admit that uh, we were kidding ourselves. We were saying that we are the best in uh, in high tech. We are we are the best in everything. But in fact, we are not the best. We are good people. We have good potential. We have the best individuals maybe or among the best individuals in Armenia and outside Armenia and we have to be able to bring all these talents together and after uh, it's normal after 30 years of independence it's like a young uh, gentleman uh, after 30 he gets mature he sits back and decides how he was going to run his life this is the stage and the parallel that I make with the present Armenia that's why we encourage a new government independent Nothing, uh, uh, not at all being hostile to the present regime mm -hmm. and also to take the path. So this is our, uh, our position in this regard. Sounds like um, a very fair and um, a fair expectation. Makes um, complete sense. Mr. Satrakian, thank you very much for being uh, on the show this morning. Appreciate all your insight and your wisdom. And um, good luck to you and AGBU in this very busy time. And I hope to speak with you again soon. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, thank you for all your listeners. Much appreciated. Okay. Thank you. That was Mr. Bertsetrakyan, who is the president of the Armenian General Benevolent Union. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami. The Blunt Post with Vic.